Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Contact Tracing the Coronavirus, Part 2. Heather Hatcher of the City Bar's Health Law Committee and Science and Law Committee, Wesley Paisley, Secretary of the City Bar's Information Technology and Cyber Law Committee, and Tim Peterson, a member of the City Bar's IT and Cyber Law Committee, speak with Charles Morgan, President of the International Technology Lawyers Association and co-leader of McCarthy Tetro's Information Technology Law Group. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Hello, Charles. Very generally, could you tell us about contact tracing in Canada? Sure. Uh, I mean, contact tracing in Canada, um, there are um, three or four well-known contact tracing projects that have come to light in Canada. Uh, The Alberta government uh, very early on developed uh, through a a private sector entity uh, that was helping it, but developed contact contact tracing application that it made available in the very early days of the COVID crisis uh, for Alberta citizens. And the adoption rate of that technology uh, has not been very high. And so it's considered for a number of reasons to have been a, a failure. There are a, a few other projects. Uh, one that's been um, that's being spearheaded by a, a Canadian company called Shopify that some of you may know. Um, there's a company called TraceScan, and there's uh, uh, one of the projects that I got to know the most about um, was was one that's headed up by a, a research institute uh, that is uh, that was founded by Yashua Bengio, who's one of the considered you know one of the three most most successful or most important AI, artificial intelligence researchers in the world. And he's based in Montreal. Um, and he uh, put together a, a project to develop contact tracing that would involve uh, the use of artificial intelligence to increase, enhance the, the quality of the results. One of, one of the issues um, that's, that's a, a real problem with, with contact tracing is there's two things. One is that it provides binary results. It's like yes or no. You you know you you either are at risk or you, you're not at risk, or you've either been in contact with somebody who has it or you don't. But that's not necessarily providing enough information, enough contextual uh, information. And so the the Yashua Benjo uh, project with with Mila, uh, the institute, uh, involved a, a risk-based analysis that um, that and that risk-based analysis was uh, enhanced by uh, artificial intelligence. And then generally, what are the privacy concerns with these technologies as implemented in Canada? So um, in Canada, just to take a step back, uh, Canada, in the United States, you have sector-specific privacy law. There's privacy laws that apply in the healthcare sector or in the financial services sector, but you don't have what are referred to as laws of general application and on privacy protection. You're starting to get that. But in Canada, we're a little bit more like Europe. Um, so whereas the Europeans have GDPR, we have uh, federal privacy law and some provincial laws that apply across the board. Um, so I would just say that, you know, as a starting point, um, privacy law issues are issues that come to the fore much, much more often in Canada than they, they might in the United States. And as soon as um, uh, you know, people started talking about contact tracing, there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of 
yeah, anxiety about the, the possibility that either government organizations or private corporations were going to be collecting all kinds of very sensitive personal data, uh, tracking geolocation data, uh, personal health information that was very sensitive, and that they would be doing that in a way that, that perhaps people were, um, you know, hadn't consented to or were unaware of. Uh, so very, very early on, um, the, the issues around consent, transparency, um, you know, what information is being collected uh, came to the fore. And in that context, it became clear that it was necessary to, to think, um, you know, very carefully about at least a couple of things. How is the technology being used and, and what's different about the different types of technology that are that are one can use? Um, and just to take an example, some contact tracing technologies use uh, GPS data to be able to follow the precise location of anybody that may have uh, um, uh, may have the virus. Others use Bluetooth tracing so that that it, Bluetooth technology doesn't tell you where you are, but it does tell you whether you are within a certain proximity of somebody else who may have the application. So Bluetooth technology, just to give that one example, is much less privacy intrusive than technologies based on contact tracing is based on GPS. Um, so so that, was, that was one factor that came uh, very early on. The second uh, issue that came up in Canada and, and, and right around the world was the choice to be uh, to use either centralized or decentralized technologies to store the data. Um, so if, if you're uh, assessing um, whether or not somebody has the virus, where is that information stored? Is it stored only on the individual's smartphone? Or is it stored in a central database that somebody, you know, a government um, entity, for instance, uh, or a private corporation might have? And obviously, uh, if it's if it's on the if it's just on the individual's phone, that is much more privacy enhancing than if it's in a centralized database. And then the third question is, well, if it is in a stored in a centralized database. Is it anonymized? Is it pseudonymized? Are there ways that the methods that have been put in place to ensure that that data um, uh, is, you know, is protected against uh, unauthorized use or is is, uh, is 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 non-sensitive? Could you tell the audience a little bit about how AI applies to contact tracing? Sure. So. Um, I mean, it, it can apply in, in, a, in a bunch of ways, but, um, you know, to take one example, if data from a whole bunch of uh, different sources and di different individuals is transferred to a centralized database, then artificial intelligence can be used to uh, examine trends. Artificial intelligence can, can be mapping the, the the flow of the ep epidemic from one area to another, and 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 talk about whether in real time there there's a problem uh, that's that's developing in one city or in one neighborhood. Um, the the second way that it can be used is that, as I say, it can be used to uh, uh, create and assess risk factors at a at a much more granular level than is the is possible with with sort of the, the binary system that I talked about. So for instance, 
um, in, in with one of the technologies that we were looking at, um, the, the, the users of the technology were asked to provide a little bit of information about themselves. Um, and, and so they would be, they would indicate, you know, whether they were using the technology, the, the, whether they were located in a workplace, uh, whether they were wearing a mask, whether they had, uh, you know, plexiglass screens. And so if you only have proximity data, you might be very close to somebody who has the virus, but you're the other side of a plexiglass screen um, is going to pretty much ensure that, that, that the other person doesn't, isn't going to uh, get the virus from you, right? Or vice versa. Uh, with, the, with AI, it, what would happen is it would examine a dozen different factors like that to assess what your actual risk level was. It's massive data crunching, basically. To, to to establish massive data crunching to establish trends that are of uh, and insights that are of value. Okay, so that massive data crunching would be considered at least under the GDPR, the processing of data, right? So, what are the privacy concerns in terms of AI processing that data, at least from a European perspective? So, there's a, a bunch of concerns that could come up. Um, uh, first of all, you know, transparency and consent. Are people aware that this data is being collected and is being shared and is being processed in this way? Um, second of all, uh, you know, data security. If there's, if there's any, uh, if, you know, imagine a database like that that gets hacked and, um, you know, that there's a, there's a data breach. Well, under GDPR, there's, there are enormous sanctions if there's, if there's a data breach and you haven't, you know, done, taken appropriate steps to protect the data. Uh, GDPR also has provisions around automated decision making. So, uh, what happens if an AI system is used to make a decision that has an effect on the legal rights of an individual? So, so imagine a scenario where you've got a contact tracing device that that is sending data that's being processed. Uh, machine learning is processing that data and says, "Oop, uh, so and so has got has probably got the virus." and therefore um, must be confined to his home or her home. An automated decision is, is occurring. And under GDPR, you have the right to contest uh, an automated decision. You also have the right for, to an explanation. You have a right to be told, well, how is it that I, that, that decision was made about me? And you, you have the, the right to human intervention in some way. Around the world, what are the factors that determine the speed of the rollout of contact tracing other than, say, privacy laws? Well, I, I mean, I, I would say the first factor is whether it's mandatory or not. Um, you know, uh, it, the, 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 the virus started in, in the East, started in China, and sort of made its way westward over time, right? And, and it went from, from China to Europe to North America. Um, and what we're seeing is a different, uh, a variety of approaches to addressing the crisis uh, that is very much based on, on local factors, local, local laws, local culture. But in China, for instance, it was, it was mandatory. Everyone had to have used the contact tracing devices that were provided by the state. And, you know, concerns around privacy law had very low priority on the scale of, of competing values. Um, it's, it was all about public health and being able to, you know, uh, shut down the public health crisis as, as soon as possible, 
uh, with with you know relatively little concern for the individual rights. It was all about you know public public health concerns. The the next jurisdiction that was notable for adopting contact tracing technology was Singapore, and Singapore is is you know it's still it's an Asian society. There's a, there's a, a lot of concern for for public health issues and so on, but you do see a bit of a Western in, influence. And what was noticeable uh, notable in Singapore is that their contract tracing device was the first to adopt the Bluetooth technology that I mentioned uh, earlier instead of using GPS, which is what China had used. And so you can see it almost immediately, uh, and it wasn't mandatory, but the, 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 uh, the Singapore uh, technology uh, was, was using, making a modification to the contact tracing technologies to uh, enhance uh, privacy rights and, and, and individual uh, autonomy. Uh, when it moved to, to Europe, there was a big, big debate as to whether the underlying technology should be based on centralized or decentralized architecture. And initially, France and Germany um, uh, thought that they were going to opt for a centralized collection of that data. Um, but because of the privacy outcry, they, they've, got, they've more or less gone to the, um, the decentralized use of technology. And I would say at each step of the way, there's been a sort of an increase in the level of, uh, well, the, 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 an increase in the level of protection, the privacy protections. And to be frank, that's also meant that there's been a decrease in the adoption rate. And that's a real problem. So um, Asian countries in general have tended to be more centralized. I don't know if that's fair to say, but let's take a country like South Korea, which is a democracy. Could you compare South Korea, which combined private and public data, even though it is one of the most democratic states in Asia? So, interesting question. I don't want to make overly broad statements about um, uh, you know foreign countries, but w one thing that I can say is that in, in the realm of contact tracing technologies, um, their effectiveness doesn't depend solely on the technology itself. And if, if you're thinking that you've got a silver bullet tool in, in an app that is somebody's going to download on a phone, then, then you're mistaken. It only works if people agree to use it. It only works if people have concern, as much concern for everybody else as they have for themselves. And, and what I would say is that, you know, in, uh, you know, broadly speaking, in, uh, in Asian uh, cultures, uh, including like South Korea, uh, there's a very strong social pressure uh, to act in, in a context of thinking about the public good much more so than on the basis of individual rights. Um, and I think that is one of the factors that has meant that uh, contact tracing technologies have been, in a sense, more effective, or the adoption rates have much, been much higher in, in the East rather than the West. So again, broadly speaking, uh, just in terms of the overall effectiveness of contact tracing, could you point to some countries that have done a good job in rolling it out and affecting the curve, so to speak, of COVID in countries that may not have done as good a job in the same way? Well, I, I, to a certain extent, uh, so 
let's be clear. I, this contact tracing so far, there haven't been many successes, uh, to be honest. Um, in some ways, uh, the, 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 from a public health perspective, um, in some ways the most successful country has been China. Uh, but that's because it's been mandatory, and that's because there have been a whole bunch of other processes put around that in addition to contact tracing to make sure that when there's a, an outbreak, it's, it's tampered down very quickly. Um, Australia has been one of the most successful countries in, in the world um, from an ad adoption rate. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is it adopted the more or less the same technology as was developed in Singapore, uh, the trace, uh, trace together uh, technology. And, and so it worked off an existing solution. It implemented um, uh, really very quickly. Um, it, it promoted one champion as opposed to competing technologies. A, a, a real issue in, in a number of jurisdictions is that there are sort of competing technologies that are, that are vying for attention. And if you get, you know, four or five technologies that people are deciding, well, which one should I take up? That reduces the chances that you're going to get an adoption rate that means that it's effective. Just to give an example, one of the, one of the statistics that's often um, bantered about, and we'll find out whether it's true or not, is that unless approximately 60% of the population takes up the technology, it, it's not going to work nearly to its um, potential. So it, it might just not work. So what Australia did well, as I say, was that it adopted the, the trace together technology uh, from Singapore very early on, on. It proposed one technology as the winner, and then the government really pushed for its adoption. And the, th the third thing that it did was it adopted a, an overarching um, law that enhanced uh, privacy protections in a, in a very short period of time. So it, like an amendment to the existing privacy law, that was focused on COVID-19 technologies. And I think that added a layer of trust for the citizens. Uh, they felt their, their privacy concerns were, were being uh, listened to. Is it fair to say that contact tracing is more appropriate for urban areas in the sense that the telecommunications infrastructure is more built out and uh, perhaps people in rural areas already stay far enough away from each other generally? Well, a few aspects to your question. I, th I think it's um, in, in Canada, like in a lot of um, countries where COVID's had its spike, it, it sort of starts in the major urban centers. That has to do with um, the fact that people in major urban centers travel more, um, that uh, there's greater density of, of population, uh, more people in contact with more people. And so when you get a spike, it, it just it, it can expand much more quickly. In Canada, the, Montreal was the city that was hit the hardest. And, and, and that's simply uh, for two reasons. The Quebec school vacation in March happened about two weeks earlier than, than the school vacations in the other provinces. And, and so Quebecers we're traveling as they always do to Florida and to, to New York and to other, you know, they were, they were traveling then maybe to Northern Italy and they came, you know, they came back from their vacation with, with, with the virus. So not, not a surprise there that it's cities that, uh, because it's all about contact, They're like, you know, rural areas are, is just in contact with fewer people. And so 
so not a surprise there. Um, I, I think what we've seen, I mean, and we're seeing it um, uh, in the United States now, where um, you know the outbreaks are just multiplying. Um, and it, it's at one point, I think the Americans sort of thought, well, this is like a, a New York City problem, but I don't have to worry about it. And the issue, you know, clearly became that, well, that New York City problem became a, a nationwide problem. And and uh, so. I do think that really the efficacy of contact tracing technologies depends on the percentage of people within an affected area that are using it. And so it's about, you know, the 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 density or the intensity of use in within a given uh, jurisdiction. But the fact is we're very mobile people and 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 what you've seen in the United States and what we saw in Canada and around the world is that, you know, it may start in one place, but uh, you, you know, you go home for the holidays, or you go home, uh, you go on a business trip, or uh, anyway, there's any number of reasons why why it can spread in quite confusing ways to to other other parts of the country. I think I think the take up rate will will start um, principally wherever people feel that it's relevant to their lives, and wherever people feel like. It's going to have a positive impact on their lives. They, they, they're not going to adopt technology unless they, they see that there's a an added value. Uh, I think that added value will be easier to demonstrate in centers where the COVID virus has seen a real spike. We've heard stories of of uh, multinational corporations coming up with their own solutions. I believe it was um, Ernst & Young that came up with its own contact tracing solution that they are now applying to their own employees and then later will apply to their own clients. What do you think generally of how multinational corporations uh, might deal with contact tracing? And do you think that those steps might be hindered by the patchwork of laws around the world? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of company or a number of companies may decide that um, if um, you know if if the government isn't going to take action then they will take action to protect their employees and protect their business so that, that they'll they'll look for solutions that are effective to protect their workforce and you know protect the bottom line um, and uh, especially where you know solutions are not being adopted um, at, at the state level, um, then then the private sector may step in to to come up with some solutions. And it might, by the way, not just be contact tracing. Um, you know, we're seeing uh, examples of technology that is simply uh, you know heat scanning to see if people have employees have temperatures when they come to work. That's not contact tracing. It's just you know it's it's on the spot or there are wearable devices that some companies are adopting in the workplace. Um, so there could be an, any range of, of uh, technologies that are adopted. I think where, to get to your point about a multinational uh, that is doing business in, in multiple jurisdictions, I think a lot of multinationals from a local compliance perspective. So if they're operating in you know five different jurisdictions, they'll say, I don't wanna adopt five different solutions I want to adopt one solution that meets the requirements of the most onerous, lo you know, local laws. And what that means, what what's that? What we're starting to see, and on a, on a number of issues, not just this one, but is that uh, the EU GDPR 
is becoming the de facto standard for for around the world and in multiple jurisdictions because companies are saying, well, if I can meet GDPR requirements, I'm, I'm probably good just about anywhere where I'm going to go. Uh, so we may see multinationals adopting a similar approach on this. We've heard stories of of uh, multinational corporations coming up with their own solutions. I believe it was um, Ernst & Young that came up with its own contact tracing solution that they are now applying to their own employees and then later will apply to their own clients. What do you think generally of how multinational corporations uh, might deal with contact tracing? And do you think that those steps might be hindered by the patchwork of laws around the world? It's a tough question. I mean, I, I, I think what, what from an outside observer, one of the things that, that strikes um, a non-American looking at the United States is just the, the level of distrust, the politicization of, of the COVID crisis in general, uh, and the level of distrust about um, just basic information that health authorities might provide to the public. And, and so there's, there's almost like a except in countries where COVID-19 technologies are mandatory, it all works on voluntary use and people will not use it unless they trust that the data is going to be used responsibly, that they trust that the technology is going to have efficacy, that it's going to work. And so you need to get that message across that, look, this is exactly how I'm going to use the data, and this is how I'm not going to use the data. Here's, here's the authority that's going to have access to the data, and you need to know that, uh, you know, this is what we're going to do with it. Uh, when the COVID crisis ends, all this data is going to be uh, securely deleted. Whenever we don't need to know your identity, we're not even going to uh, keep your identity. It's going to be anonymized. You know, there's, there's lots that can be done to reassure people about the responsible governance of the information that will be collected. There's lots that can be done to reassure people that this technology is being used to help them, not to track them, to surveil them, to, you know, uh, and, and it's, it's, uh, there's lots that can be done to reassure people that the data is being collected so that not, not so that they're going to sell you products. You know, it's not. It's like you don't want to have um, a, a contact tracing technology. Then say, oh well, if you know, for three ninety nine, you can get this uh, skip rope and uh, whatever else, and your uh, chances of dying will be decreased by five percent. Yeah, I'm coming up with bad jokes, but the 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 point is, people need to be reassured that their their data is being used responsibly, uh, and so. Governance, uh, the go all, all the issues around governance of, of how the data is, is, is going to be, um, you know, collected, uh, used, and uh, responsibly destroyed are as important. Transparency, uh, consent, fairness, making sure that people feel that the technology is, is to benefit everybody and not just a subset of members of society. I don't want to take up too much of your time. You've been so generous with it. Wesley, Heather, do you have any questions that you would like to ask? Uh, yeah. Would you be willing to answer some Canadian constitutional issues? Uh, sure. Maybe. So I... Depends. 
<laughs> yeah, because uh, I was looking through the Canadian Constitution, and, and it has some similar issues. I'm sorry, okay. similar takes to the United States Constitution, especially mm-hmm. in the Canadian Charter, the right to peacefully assemble. And I was wondering, how do we balance that right compared to contact tracing, which is literally going to identify where you are, who's uh, who has a higher chance of getting it, and people who are currently infected. And this might limit their ability to peacefully assemble, you know, and I'm just, if I'm just struggling, how would you take this advising someone, uh, let's say a government official comes to you and say like, how can I ensure constitutional rights while protecting the public health? Hmm. Uh, hmm. Yeah, no, it's a tough one. In America, we well, ain't, we're not doing any better ever. So yeah, no, I, I, I guess I mean, it, candidly, um, the, this it hasn't been a, a a big controversial issue in Canada. Um, uh, so, like, it's it's seen as a as a as a public health issue. Um, well, for, for, first of all, uh, the contact tracing devices. Uh, don't force you to do anything like they're providing you information. That information is then used by the individual to make choices for themselves. Right. So there's, uh, for the most part, there's no issue about um, your, well, except in, 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 in rare circumstances, I can imagine there, there may be a case where, you know, somebody has, uh, COVID-19 and, and has become clearly a menace to society in the sense that they are wandering about and, and, and the authority, public health authorities would, would intervene and say, well, no, you, you are going to be um, uh, confined. Uh, but that would be an exceptionally rare circumstance and, and uh, it just hasn't been a real issue. Um, so for, for, for the most part, the, the, the contact tracing technologies provide information to the individual and to public health authorities uh, that helps them react and inform on an informed basis. Because hmm. let's if, think if of you what, had, go ahead. So if we stretch the analogy even more or give a more example, we could say a group of people want to talk about how their data is going to be shared by companies. Right. One or two have been identified by the health system, by the the Canadian health system that they have COVID-19. Mm-hmm. A few others have not so much, but they're coming together to just peacefully assemble and discuss this issue. The problem is they have, they don't have the great internet. They have a very limited internet access. So they're in a rural part of Canada. So they can't really go and do Zoom like we're doing. So that, that's one thing you eliminate from them. So they have to do it in person, but it's going to create a new cluster, maybe even a third wave that that uh, predictably comes down to the city. Uh, and certain government officials might say, well, we, we prefer you not to come together. Is there, can you wait later to discuss this? But they can't because the issue is ripe. They're trying to understand that the data that's being processed is not gonna be used against them in the future. And currently it is because the uh, uh, government official steps in and says, uh, hey, I think you guys shouldn't meet in person even though you do have the right to peacefully assemble. It's, it's that type of friction that we see more in the US where a lot of people are doing protests right now, either way, either for or against the government for contact tracing, which are 
in other words, actually forward, but they're still coming together because lack of internet uh, resources. So it's an interesting question. Um, and I must say that my first reaction is that I really don't think this would be an issue and it certainly hasn't been a significant issue in Canada so far. Uh, for the most part, there's been a remarkable level of consensus uh, in the Canadian public um, right across the political spectrum that this is a public health crisis that we need to work together in order to address this public health crisis. Um, and so there's, we don't have examples of, of people sort of demonstrating that, um, you know, their rights are being violated when public officials are suggesting um, that it's important for them to, you know, implement social distancing measures or, uh, you know, wear masks or, or whatever else is required under a given circumstance. Um, and so there's, we don't have examples of, of people sort of demonstrating that, um, you know, their rights are being violated when public officials are suggesting um, that it's important for them to, you know, implement social distancing measures or, uh, you know, wear masks or, or whatever else is required under a given circumstance. Um, so it, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't seem to be a, a big issue. I think if it, it came to the point that where, you know, somebody wanted to express legitimate concerns, and there are all kinds of legi legitimate concerns that, that one might express about contact tracing technologies. Um, th th those have played out in the media, you know, letters to the editor, articles have been written, um, and, and, and that's absolutely fine, and it doesn't impose, there's no concern about um, public health that uh, issues that could result if somebody who actually has the virus uh, goes out into public. Um, as somebody who has the virus and wants to express their ideas is, is, is absolutely free to do so. The issue is if somebody has the virus, you don't want that person to go out and infect other people to be a danger to, to others. Um, so I, I think in, in some ways sort of the first question is, if somebody knows they have the virus, why on earth would, would they want to go out into the public and bring other people into harm's way? Uh, I, think, I think that would be a, a major uh, consideration. Um, if it turned out that somebody did have the virus and did feel that they wanted to be able to act in an unimpeded manner and be able to go out into uh, you know, public spaces uh, with with no uh, view for the for the health of others. All rights that are guaranteed by the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms are subject to reasonable limits um, that may be imposed in a free and democratic society. Um, and so we have we have uh, the Charter is is subject to a, a sort of a balancing test. I think there's a, there's a, you know a couple of examples that demonstrate that uh, where public assembly might lead to um, uh, concerns about public safety or uh, public health uh, concerns, uh, those rights of public assembly uh, can be limited. So just to take two examples, um, uh, th there was a, an or a group of people who would organize a um, 
celebratory event in a public park uh, every year. And year after year, uh, the, the, uh, they, they left a lot of garbage. Uh, they, um, uh, they were insalubrious. Uh, there was, you know, rotting food and things like that. And it created a, um, a uh, public health hazard. Um, and so they, they had, uh, each year they'd obtained a, a permit to have their event in a park. Um, and they were uh, told that they could no longer get that permit because of their past abuses. And they, they brought an action before the courts in order to determine whether they would have the right, um, you know, whether it was a violation of their right of public assembly uh, that they were not afforded this, um, this permit to have the, the, their event in the pu public park. Um, and the court said, well, no, it's not a violation of the right of, of public assembly. Uh, this is an appropriate limitation uh, on your right uh, because uh, being in public uh, under these circumstances um, uh, is, would be a you know, health hazard. So I don't want to belabor the point, but I just thought I would give you a, a second example, just so that you're aware of uh, perhaps the difference. Um, a, a second example uh, of the application of uh, the right to public assembly and, and, and the, uh, the limits uh, under the Canadian Constitution uh, relates to a, a situation of um, picketers outside of uh, abortion clinics. Um, and uh, in Canada, there had been some picketing in front of abortion clinics, and the picketers uh, got so close to the abortion clinics uh, that it was uh, considered that uh, there was a, a, a threat to the health and safety um, and psychological well-being of the, um, uh, both the, uh, the patients and the, uh, the staff at the clinics. And so a regulation was put in place saying that the picketers had to be uh, a certain distance from the health facilities uh, and or could only picket in front of hospitals as opposed to um, um, you know, sort of private clinics. And that was challenged and the court ultimately said that the, the limit um, or restrictions that were based on valid public health concerns uh, were reasonable uh, in a free and democratic society and they were upheld. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Uh, the next question I have is, in Canadian law, do you guys have fiduciary duties for data broking, data brokers? Because um, I'm, I'm not too familiar with it. And the reason I ask that is, if we'd say going forward, we want to create a more developed uh, contact tracing app, should we start imposing fiduciary duties on top of the developers? Just like we impose fiduciary duties on doctors with data, lawyers with their clients' information, and sometimes bankers with the financial amounts of their users or customers. Um, yeah, so uh, in, in general, there, there isn't a fiduciary duty. The, the, uh, there's a lot of uh, discussion about um, setting up what are referred to as data trusts. Mm -hmm. So a data trust is, is, would be a, a trust, an, an entity um, a specific purpose entity that's created in order to uh, process data. Um, and then you put in place a, a governance structure that means that, um, you know, there's an in, independent governance body uh, that might be comprised, for instance, of uh, some ethicists, some lawyers, some, a variety of stakeholders. 
uh, to make sure that the data is, is um, being used for the purpose for which it was collected, that it's being responsibly used, it's being destroyed responsibly when it's, when it's no longer uh, a need. Um, in most of the cases, the, the, what's being encouraged is that the, the data be held by uh, public health authorities rather than private corporations. Um, I mean, w w what I think is uh, that if, if, again, if we want people to trust the, the technology, then, then talking quite a lot about data stewardship becomes important and demonstrating that you are actually, um, you know, managing the data responsibly becomes incredibly important. Um, and so if it's, if, if it's, you know, simply left with a private enterprise that could sell the data for any, uh, for its own reason, um, you know, uh, they could use it in ways that are not consistent with what it said to the public. Presumably that's going to mean that people don't, aren't, aren't, aren't going to trust um, the applications. Thank you. So is there anything else that uh, you wish to add? Sure. Well, I, I think I mentioned at the outset that um, I had been involved uh, with other members of the International Technology uh, Law Association, ITEC Law, uh, in a project that was initiated, initiated by the Human Technology Foundation uh, to draft a report um, on the responsible use of uh, contact tracing technologies. And that report is, is now complete. Um, uh, French, it was initially drafted in French and the French version has already been published. Uh, the English version of the report is going to be published uh, probably later this week. Uh, but in any event, uh, if not this week, then next week. And it's a it's, we're making it available for, it's, it, it will be available through the Human Technology uh, foundation website, but we're also making it available through the itechlaw.org website. Um, and so there's a, the report is, um, it's a, it's about a 60 page report uh, with a hundred pages of annexes. It's, 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 it's a, it's a, a significant work. Um, and I think it could be of, of a lot of value uh, to, to anybody looking at, at these issues. The report is divided into three sections. Uh, one that sort of goes through uh, um, the frame of reference that um, is, is helpful to, to, to think about the issues uh, that are, um, well, that really have to be thought through when you're, when you're thinking about these technologies and, and, and the, the public health issue at large. Uh, the second part of the report uh, um, does a, a deep dive on the technologies that are involved uh, because a, a thorough understanding of the technology is important to understand the, the policy and legal issues. Um, and then the third section of the report uh, treats uh, governance issues and some of the legal issues involved. Um, and we've included in the report in, in its annex um, a, a, a template for um, uh, people often refer to um, privacy impact assessments, uh, this template is 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 a multi-factor impact assessment. So it's it's a risk impact assessment template uh, that that uh, people can be, use uh, uh, when 
considering new technologies and, and in particular this this new technology. Um, and so there's uh, we're we're making available the report uh, in English and French uh, through the itechlaw.org website. Uh, we're also making available that multi-factor uh, risk impact assessment form um, in English, French, uh, German, and Italian. Uh, so uh, that that is available for for free for download uh, from the itech law uh, website. That's uh, terrific, and we will put those resources in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on iTunes or Google Play or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Tim Peterson, Eric Friedman, and Alex Cardaras.